You're listening to the Mindful Psychology Podcast, a podcast designed to explore mindfulness, psychology, neuroscience, and various aspects of holistic health. My name is Jen. I'm your host. I'm also a therapist, an educator, and a yoga teacher. Join me and brilliant guests as we explore various topics and offer you actionable steps so that you can be informed and intentional about your health and well-being. Now sit back, relax, maybe take a notebook out, and let's dive in. and welcome to a brand new episode of the Mindful Psychology Podcast. Today we are joined by another very special guest sharing another very empowering story. Dr. Renee is going to take us through how she used to work in psycho-oncology as a clinical psychologist and then as she left that was diagnosed with cancer herself. Everything that happened since then is a very big part of obviously her life today and a little and a big part of what we're going to talk about in this episode. Obviously she's going to share her story in a very inspiring way, a lot better than I could in this intro. So I'll let her describe everything to you and explain everything to you. It was really such a joy uh, to, to speak to Renee and really just so inspiring. So without further ado, here is Dr. Renee. Hi, Dr. Renee. How are you today? Good morning. I'm so excited to be your guest. Thank you so much for being here. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm super excited to be speaking to someone in Croatia as well. <laughs> I know. I know. It's really fun to be speaking to you all the way in New York. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, and, and this conversation makes the world feel much warmer and smaller. Yes, especially in a time like this, right? Like this year, it's just been really nice to cultivate more connection around the world and just in general, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited for our chat today. And um, without any more delay, I want to really introduce you and your work to everybody. So why don't you talk to us about who you are, your work, and everything that you have going on right now? Sure, sure. Um, so I was a psychologist and I was working in a pediatric cancer center uh, for about six years where I worked with uh, children and adolescents diagnosed with cancer. And when it was uh, time for me to leave, uh, because I felt like I was surrounded by an excessive amount of trauma, um, I left and shortly thereafter was diagnosed with my own breast cancer. Uh, so during my journey, I uh, definitely felt out of sync with my body and was looking for ways to feel more empowered. Uh, so I became a student of diet and exercise. Um, I eventually became a certified personal trainer. I'm also certified in nutrition. I also became a figure competitor where I stood on stage in my stripper heels and bikini and flexed my muscles. Uh, and then I later opened up a center called the Metamorphosis Center for Psychological and Physical Change where I integrate psychotherapy and exercise. Uh, and I also utilize um, a lot of cognitions and visual imagery in a really unique and special way uh, when I'm working with individuals um, concerning food and exercise. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wrote a book called Chemo Muscles, Lessons Learned from Being a Psycho-Oncologist and Cancer Patient, where I chronicle uh, my experience and I uh, enlist coping mechanisms for individuals who are going through the cancer journey, as well as friends and family members, so that they better understand how to more effectively treat their loved ones with cancer. Uh, there's also um, a guideline in here for healthcare professionals, how to better treat uh, patients with compassionate care. Uh, through the whole biopsychosocial lens, uh, really looking at them as individuals versus patients. Mm -hmm. um, and I also talk a lot about this idea of mind-body connection and integrating uh, psychotherapy exercise with cognitions and visual imagery. So that's me. That's my that's story. Amazing. That's a beautiful story, as I've told you as well off air. That's a really inspiring story. Um, I, I guess I just, I mean, there's so much there to unpack. I guess my first question would be to talk a bit more about the imagery and cognition as it pertains to uh, nutrition and mind-body connection and all of that. Sure. Um, so my office is, you know, part funky, cool gym um, and part stodgy psychotherapy office with my mahogany desk and my diplomas. So people walk in and they're kind of uh, taken aback by this mixture. Um, but I have really a, a functional gym in here. And uh, when I'm working with patients, um, it's very much a unique individual experience. Sometimes it's just traditional psychotherapy, but other times uh, we mosey on over to the gym. And when I talk about visual imagery and cognitions, there's so much about 
about uh, cognitions that can impact us in a positive manner. Uh, one of the things we know about exercise when we're exercising is that if we think about the exercise we're doing, if we think about actually working on a specific muscle as we're lifting a weight, we know that that muscle can actually increase just by concentrating on its growth and thinking about it. And so I apply the same mechanisms to food and to exercise and to psychotherapy, but I do it in um, a triad pretty much. And so in terms of food, uh, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I was really a sugar addict. Um, I injected Sour Patch Kids and Laffy Taffy on a daily basis. Um, and so I started researching food and I saw the importance of nutrition and how sugar feeds tumors. Um, and so I started researching the foods that were um, more salubrious and helpful for fighting cancer. Um, and there's a list of foods. There's so many foods that are you know, packed with antioxidants and fight free radicals, so many. And so in addition to eating these foods, as I ate them, I started really applying this idea of positive cognitions. And so when I'm eating food, it's no longer just eating food. There's a very mindful experience that happens when I'm eating food. But one of the things that's very important to me, and I think can be very important to people in the world in general, but particularly those with any kind of illness, is to really think about the properties of the food and to think about each thing that you're eating and how it's positively affecting your body. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, when I have my green tea, um, not only am I drinking it in an extremely slow, mindful capacity where I'm engaging all of my five senses and smelling the tea and feeling the hot mug between my hands and listening to the peace and quiet, but I'm also thinking as I'm ingesting the tea about the polyphenols that are going to fight the free radicals and how as I'm taking in this green tea, it's reducing my cancer. And so as I'm focusing on that, you know, cognitions are so, so powerful and studies show that our cognitions can impact so much of our experience. You know, positive cognitions are, are related to decreased uh, cancer. They're related to increased immunity, increased sense of well-being. I mean, there are a thousand things that positive cognitions are connected to. So for me, it's a step further in terms of thinking as we're eating, not only just in this mindful way, but really incorporating what the food is doing. And then in, in terms of exercise, obviously I just spoke earlier about, you know, this mind-muscle connection, but the way that I integrate it with psychotherapy is very specific to each individual and what they're going through. Um, and so just to give you an example of um, one thing that I'm doing, like right now I'm working with a woman who just left an extremely competitive uh, career where she felt, um, she felt like she uh, wasn't really uh, existing in the world in the way that she wanted to. She felt like uh, it wasn't authentic um, and she really stressed the competitive nature of it and she kind of experienced it as more ugly. Uh, and so one of the things that we do is when she comes to my office, in addition to just talking um, about life issues and her experience as I would in regular psychotherapy, we go over to my gym and the visual imagery might be her sitting on the bench press with the, you know, with the weights at her chest. And as she has the weights at her chest, she's thinking about maybe where she's been, right? Like this ugly place that felt very competitive and how she felt like she was far away from a lot of things that felt authentic to her. Mm -hmm. And then we will do a chest fly, which is, you know, something that you do for the chest, pectoral muscles. And as she's opening up and extending her arms into the chest fly, I will have her visualize the places that she wants to go in her life and how she wants to expand, you know, as a human being, how she wants to expand mm -hmm. her identity, how she wants to grow like a butterfly, right? And mm -hmm. so we do that repeatedly. And sometimes they're accompanied by mantras, um, you know, verbal mantras. Sometimes they're just the thought. But we do many of these things, um, and they're very specific to each uh, person that I'm working with. So to answer you in a very long, drawn-out way, that's, that's an example. 
That was that was perfect. No, I, I really love that you combine the two so well. And I love that mind-body connection and really working, obviously, because psychotherapy, we're dealing with, start, you know, starting with the mind and kind of how this, how we can analyze what's happening and, you know, understand what's, what's going on and how we can heal. But really starting from the body sometimes is a different approach. You can kind of come at it from two different angles, literally, you know, um, and to help the healing process. I think it's incredible. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really incredible. And I'm just curious in general to know, when you were studying to become a psychologist, did you know that this was the direction that you were going to go into? Did you always have a bit of an idea or? No, um, you know, I, I often sort of questioned how I ended up working in a pediatric cancer center. Uh, and one of the things that you hopefully discover when you become a psychologist or any other profession, but specifically a psychologist, because you should be you know, more self-reflective, is how I ended up working with kids with chronic illness. Um, so I actually, um, my sister has juvenile diabetes. And so I grew up with chronic illness being very much a part of my early life. And so I think it was a natural gravitation for me to move towards working with kids who had illness. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a place where I felt very comfortable and I, I loved the work. Um, and I did it, as I said, for six years, but I never, ever thought that I would become a personal trainer or um, involved with the mind body. Um, I've done work with chronic pain uh, prior to working in the pediatric cancer center. So there's always been an element of mind body. Um, it's something that I've always been interested in, but I never thought that I'd become a personal trainer and open my own center and, you know, come up with this way to really integrate these philosophies in this, in this way that feels really beautiful to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And it, and it seems to have come together so well for you, like almost like this perfectly unique combination that you've created, right? In your own yeah. way of working with the, the mind, the body and the and the, the emotions and all of that. So that's really interesting. Um, the, the other question I have actually is, what, what are some of the changes that you've seen working with people? So I know, obviously, there's been a lot of transformation in, in your career from what you've said. Um, but what are some of the ways that treating people with more mind-body connection has evolved for you? Um, I just think that in general, you know, one of the things that we know about exercise is that exercise in general is so good for um, decreasing depression, decreasing anxiety, increasing sense of well-being. So as I started exercising while I was going through cancer treatment, um, I started to see that I felt much more empowered. I felt like I had more energy. And the more I exercised, the further away I felt from being physically sick. And I started to see myself, literally see myself as much stronger. And one of the things that was really hard for me while I was going through um, this cancer diagnosis and the experience was seeing myself as a very vulnerable individual and, and taking on this new identity of being sick. Um, and so the more I exercised, the further away I, you know, I came from that. And then I started really researching exercise and I read so many studies about how exercise, you know, did so many wonderful things for our mental health. And then I just found myself routinely talking to patients about you know, the benefits of exercise. So if I was working with a woman who was unhappy in her marriage or depressed, I would just start talking about like how important it was to exercise. And then I started talking about the importance of food. And then I started noticing you know, that food plays such a role in mental health. Um, even the timing of our food, you know, everything, it's, it's really related to our mood. Um, and so I just started putting it out there and I just started seeing people uh, responding really positively to it and mm -hmm. also feeling better. Yeah, no, certainly. I'm curious to know what you mean by the timing. So obviously food is important, um, but, but I want to know more about that um, and, and the research that you've done on all of that. What, what, what yeah. you stands out most in terms of like how we eat or how we should eat and when all that yeah so you know so many people um you know obviously sugar is something that's that's really detrimental to us um one of the things that we know about food is that certain food can um really increase uh there are higher levels of protein in certain foods right and so protein is a brain food protein can make us feel really good but in terms of like even um, specific foods, when we have plain carbohydrates, you know, plain carbohydrates can be uh, fruit or Sour Patch Kids or bagel or uh, pasta, you know, we're literally 
dropping in like a, a bunch of sugar into our blood glucose. And when you have these spikes in your blood glucose, you can have crashes in your mood. You know, you can have, so if somebody has underlying anxiety, they will have spikes in that anxiety or that low mood after they eat something that's heavy laden with carbohydrates because there's nothing to kind of balance out the blood glucose. So we find that when we add protein to particular to, to all meals, right? If you're having just carbohydrates and you add protein. So if you're having a bagel, instead of just having a bagel with butter, you have a bagel with turkey, we're stabilizing the blood glucose and we don't get those accompanying dips that can cause lower mood. So that's just really important to keep in mind, you know, that, that the food that we eat is really important and can, and can affect our mood. And, and we've all heard, you know, when, when children are younger, don't give them sugar, right? They'll be, they'll be up and they'll be hyperactive, right? But there's, there's a lot of veracity to that. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not about giving up food. It's about just, you know, obviously everything in moderation, but also learning to, to pair food with other foods so that we don't get those accompanying glucose drops or spikes. That is so interesting. And even just the, the afternoon lulls, right? Like that can just be from maybe, you know, you had that coffee or that second coffee and then there's the afternoon lulls. I don't know. I get afternoon lulls and you know, I never even thought too much about it. I'm just thinking, oh, it's because it's afternoon, but maybe there's so much more to it actually. You yeah, know? Actually, yeah. They say that um, the, the circadian rhythm for most people in the world is sometime around three o'clock, their bodies kind of have that tank right? And so it's also very much about what we eat, you know, like if you're eating food that, um, you know, kind of sustains you, even if you, I mean, if you think about food, like even breakfast food, right? If you're having a sugary bowl uh, of cereal, right? Versus like a bowl of oatmeal, the oatmeal is going to sustain you longer. You're going to be less hungry. You know, the fiber will fill you up. So there, so there are so many things about food, but, you know, there are a lot of things that can cause those crashes, you know, in terms of our energy. And usually if you think about it around three o'clock is when a lot of people go and grab, you know, a snack that's usually not very good for them, mm -hmm. you know, like a donut or, you know, they go to the vending machine. And so it's just really important to, to think about the food that you're putting in your body. But, you know, for me personally, it's not just the food that I'm putting in my body. It's like, if I have you know, if I, if I take a packet of nuts, it's not just nuts. It's like, I will literally think about, you know, these are, these are nuts and there's, you know, a higher concentration of magnesium in them and the magnesium is good for my mood. And we know that magnesium lowers anxiety. Like, so for me, you know, I get into my head about what the food is doing. Um, and mm -hmm. so I'm not just, you know, putting something in my body. Each time I'm putting something in my body, there's a mindful experience about what it is. Um, and that's not to say that I don't love my Sour Patch Kids because I truly do, you know, um, but, uh, you know, but like I try pretty hard to eat most of the time, you know, clean um, because I know how it makes my body feel. And, you know, and from a psychological standpoint, I just also see it as the way that I can be in control of my health. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that it's also good to practice that in general. If you're, especially if you're, if you're struggling with with um, uh, cravings, yeah, and you you like you like sweet things, or you like, you know, if you have a bit of a sweet tooth, you'll always be a little bit more cheeky. I find, you know, you'll have the sweets, <laughs> you'll have the chocolate, or you'll have the 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 things. But I guess even with savory things, right? Like you'll still get that craving, and you really feel like having that or whatever, or the other thing. Yeah. But it's really important. I, th I think also the mindfulness aspect of it, you know, the, the, the fact that you take yourself through it every time you put something in your mouth, you think, okay, what is this doing for me? And I think when you do that and you're having the Sour Patch Kid, you're thinking, oh, okay, well, this dialogue just isn't as pleasant as when I'm having, say, an apple or something because <laughs> I know I'm not being as good for myself. So that's also a way to tell yourself, you know, yeah, to make yourself see. I think it's also important not to deprive. Like when I'm having my Sour Patch Kids, I'm not saying, oh, this is terrible for you. Like I'm, I'm, I also really listen to my body, you know? So if I'm having my Oreo or my Sour Patch Kids, I really enjoy them <laughs> and I, you know, and then I move on, right? Like, but I think that it's so important to listen to your body. If your body wants Skittles, give your body Skittles, you know, but you know, also give your body sweet potato and, you know, and, and uh, yeah. learn a balance, you know? Yeah. I think that's a really interesting one. I, I struggle with like some self-control with cravings actually sometimes. And um, depending on the day or depending on the time, but I'll have these weird cravings where I just have to have, you know, a certain thing or, you know, but I yeah. think if you just embrace it, it might make it less, um, less cheeky when you're having it or you, you'll feel less guilty. I think if you even just enjoy it um, rather than being self-deprecating oh, sure. as you're having so it. It's, it's, yeah. 
so much guilt connected to food, um, you know, and it's, it's really unfortunate because food is a way to nurture and sustain us, you know, but most eating issues, um, you know, are connected to feelings and connected to deprivation and guilt. Um, people overeat when they sometimes haven't had their emotional needs met and they use food to meet those needs. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really upsetting when somebody eats something that's really enjoyable and then they just walk away feeling terrible about it. You know, and I will say particularly um, young, you know, young girls, adolescent girls, there, there's something in our culture, you know, that says like you were quote unquote bad if you had a brownie or, and you'll even hear people saying, I was so bad. I was mm -hmm. so bad. Like, what were you so bad? I ate a cookie. And it's so punitive and, and destructive, right? Like we should really enjoy our food and have a more positive relationship with our food, you know? And ideally when we're trying to get healthy, you know, ideally we're not actually supposed to remove the benefit or the uh, junky stuff. We're not supposed to remove it. What we're supposed to do is slowly integrate the healthier things so that over time, our bodies become used to the healthier things and eventually the junky things just start to get crowded out. And even in terms of like what you were saying before about cravings, if you slowly get rid of sugar, uh, like I did, and, and I, as I said, I used to inject, literally inject <laughs> Laffy Taffy. I think my kids, when they were in my womb, grew up on banana Laffy Taffy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, if you slowly get rid of it, when you have it for the, you know, the next time, like if you haven't had sugar for a while or you really limit it, the next time you have it, you're just like overwhelmed by how sweet it is. Yes. Like you yes. can't believe it, right? And so it's just a matter of like slowly, you know, slowly integrating, you know? So I always say, if you're gonna have a greasy pork sandwich, still have your greasy pork sandwich, but slap a thing of lettuce on, you know, <laughs> so that you're slowly just moving because we know either, you know, in terms of exercise or in terms of um, diet or really anything, we know that we can't sustain these dramatic shifts in our identity. We can't sustain them. And the only way to sustain something is to start in these really, really small steps. So mm -hmm. it shouldn't be like today's January 1st, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to start a diet and like everything is going to change today because you know, we know that that doesn't last, you know, three weeks later, everyone's out of the gym. And so it has to be like, I'm going to brush my teeth today. And as I'm brushing my teeth, I'm just going to do, you know, five squats as I'm brushing my teeth, right? Because our muscles don't know if we're in the gym or we're in front of uh, the television, watching Oprah and eating bonbons, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's just very small changes that can eventually wake our bodies up and start to teach our brains something new so that those neural connections are changed. And then our brain starts to move in a slightly different direction. That's really interesting. So like speaking of those kinds of things, like why do resolutions not last? Like what, what is the disconnect there? I mean, I, I, you've, you've mentioned it a little bit now, but I, if we can dive in a little bit deeper, like how can people stick to their resolutions of all kinds, like physical and other ones with their food yeah. or even just emotional things that they're trying to do? Um, how can we, do that? Like, what do we need to understand in order for that to start clicking a little bit more? I think that we need to understand that we, you know, have to embrace our identities and be accepting of ourselves where we're at. And so when, when people take on these lofty goals, like they completely want to change, it's very difficult to integrate so much change into your identity and sustain it because it's not who you are, right? And so we have to like slowly, slowly move in a direction that feels more natural um, so that we can sustain it. And so when I say I'm a clean eater, I did that in such, you know, in such, um, uh, it was like such a long journey for me. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of when I was 10 years old and I went to my best friend Stacy's house and her mother made me sit at the table and eat broccoli. And I was absolutely horrified. And my parents had just come home from a trip and they bought me this beautiful brown leather bag and I had it, it was a, a pocketbook, it was on my body, right? And Stacy's mother said, you must eat this broccoli. And I was flipping out. And so what did I do when Stacy's mom went into the kitchen? I took all the broccoli and I put it in a napkin and I put it in my purse and I ran to the bathroom and I threw it down the toilet. Right. And I was so worried that my parents were going to get angry because I had this beautiful brown leather bag that now had green stains on the pocketbook. This is a true story. But now, all of these years later, I love broccoli, but it didn't happen overnight. I literally with broccoli, I started with a plate of broccoli and I 
smothered it with American cheese, so much so that you didn't even see green. Like it was just a plate of yellow, right? <laughs> and that was the only way that I could tolerate the broccoli, right? Mm. And I was sort of, and this was years ago, I was like, I'm going to start eating healthy, right? And so probably the amount of fat and, you know, on this, pa- on this uh, broccoli was like overwhelmed with American cheese, but eventually the American cheese became less and less until eventually I could eat the broccoli without anything, right? And that's sort of the direction that we move. I remember when I started with, you know, trying to have like juices, I bought one of those like pre-made juices that you buy in the bottle in the grocery store that's green and it looks really scary and disgusting, right? (laughs) And like, as I said, I was a junk, you know, like a sugar addict. And so even that green looked disgusting, right? It was mostly vegetables with like a pineapple or two in there. And it really wasn't bad. And so that was my first step until eventually I started like making more natural juices. And and now it's like a natural juicing product, right? And it's no sugar, you know, so everything that I've done has been like from, you know, beginning standpoint, and it's taken a longer time to get there. But I think that when you start so dramatically, you're not used to that and you can't sustain it and it doesn't feel natural. And so it has to be a slow progression that you feel in charge of and Mm -hmm. that, you know, aligns with your own goals. um, And that just feels more natural and leads you in the direction of your own personal goals, because not everybody, you know, not everybody wants to be a clean eater. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's just about making steps to make each individual person live a healthier life. And that's going to be different for everybody. You know, not all of us have to be, you know, like eating walnuts, you know, like a squirrel all day, you know? Um, so <laughs> I'm making you laugh. <laughs> like the way you say things. Um, but yeah, no, that, that was really helpful. And I've always wondered that as well. I always wanted to kind of crack the code and figure out why I, you know, we see so many New Year's resolutions are so many big, okay, yes, tomorrow I'm starting this, 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 and it never sticks or whatever. And I've always, and I've, I mean, I've had moments like that as well, where I've been like, okay, starting whatever day or whatever month, I'm going to do this thing. And then I often just go like, oh, but it's not working. It's not sustainable. And other things are getting in the way and whatever. And then I thought, well, it's either not a priority or I'm not like putting it into my life properly. Like something's not working. Something's a bit disconnected. Um, but yeah. I never looked at it this way. It's so much, it makes so much more sense now to to kind of lower the bar, lower the expectations so that the yeah. gap isn't so big and overwhelming. Yeah, because it's not all or nothing. It's like mm-hmm. just a, yes. tiny little, a tiny little step, you know, and, and, over, and you can take the next step, like even in a month from now, if you wanted to, but like each step is progress, you know? Yeah, I think that's, and I also think in our society, everything is about results and instant gratification. And when we don't have that, it really makes us, yeah, and then we see that gap even more. Like there are jokes about weight loss, for example, that say, oh my God, like I went to the gym for one, like I went to the gym for one day and I'm still looking the same, like how rude. And I know it's supposed to be funny and stuff and it, and like, it, it doesn't give me a giggle. But then I just think to myself, but it's true. We do feel like that. We'll work out for a week and because we're not looking the way we think we should be looking, we'll panic. Um, or we eat this, you know, this one sweet thing or this one savory thing, whatever we'll, we'll freak out and be like, Oh no, I was doing so well. And now I failed. I cheated. It's like very all or nothing. It's, and, and as you said, you know, we're, a, a, you know, we want instant gratification. I refer to our society as a microwave society, right? Like, we yeah. and everything changes, you know, but like, mm-hmm. we need to be more patient with ourselves. People get so dejected and hard on themselves when they don't meet these lofty goals. And you know, it's all about like your journey, you know, and, and mm-hmm. just making steps, you know, for, you know, for every, you know, for everything. Right. And it's, and we're always going to be taking steps. Sometimes I have young people say, you know, these grandiose things about me, like as they're talking to me, they might say something like, well, are you happy? Or, you know, and I'm like, what? Like, this is a journey, right? Like we're all always moving towards becoming you know, more self-actualized and becoming better people and growing for, for whatever that is for each of us, right? And hopefully we never stop growing. Hopefully we're, we remain on this path and we're always learning and always moving towards growth for, for whatever it means for each of us individually. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And um, with, with more uh, to do with like the psychological work that you do with, with patients, are you always trying to combine the physical and the, like, are you always doing, is that just how you work with your patients? Or do some of them say, or do they request this whole, you know, going to the gym as well? Yeah. 
So I, so there, there are only a handful of people who want to actually, you know, really integrate exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do find myself just thinking constantly about uh, food and exercise. So it's now become, you know, part of my intake, you know, because now I really want to know what they're eating. Um, and, you know, and, and if they're exercising, because, we, you know, there are certain countries, um, New Zealand, Australia, where, you know, uh, antidepressants is not the first line of treatment. The first line of treatment is actually um, exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, you know, there are many studies that show that for moderate, for mild to moderate depression and uh, exercise works as effectively as an antidepressant, yeah. right? And so, you know, in this country, there's a higher uh, degree of emphasis placed on uh, antidepressant medication and not everybody wants to take medication and some people have side effects unfortunately and sometimes it can be really beneficial for people but you know I, I personally always start from a homeopathic standpoint so if I you know know somebody has obsessive compulsive disorder I know that there are certain foods or supplements that can you know diminish anxiety um, I you know and so I will always list for the people I'm working with the supplements. And I'll always preface it by saying, I'm not a medical doctor, so I can't tell you to take these, but look at this, you know, do your own research and see how you feel about it and see how it works, you know? And so, you know, like for myself, you know, diet and exercise helped me phenomenally and and just really makes me feel like an active agent on my environment. It makes me feel much healthier. I know that it can do that for other people. And so I always start from that standpoint, just with diet and exercise. And sometimes I'll have somebody be like, don't remotely try and touch my Doritos. Don't even think about it. Right. And I'm like, and I'll say, I don't, I don't have to touch your Doritos, but maybe you could have Doritos with kale. (laughs) You know I mean? You know, it's, it, and some people are totally not into it and that's fine too. Um, But I do now, see that as, you know, as part of the human being. I no longer, you know, just just look at the, you know, family dynamics or I think that food and nutrition and exercise is really, really important. That's incredible. And, and, and I don't think we place enough attention on it. I think there's a lot of negative attention on food and, mm-hmm. and exercise and all of that. Um, because of different things that we've kind of mentioned and obviously that you know some of the obvious ones but uh, not so much as it pertains to helping you psychologically right like not so much as they can be even more effective than medications you know like I didn't even know that I don't think in such formal terms that exercise could be just as effective if not more than uh, some antidepressants I didn't know that so I mean I I know that it can help with anxiety and depression of course but uh, I didn't know I didn't make so much like there's no, you know, one of the things that we know about like dementia is that, you know, one of the only things that they've actually found, um, you know, keeps dementia at bay is exercise, you know? So like, it's so good, you know, for so many, for so many people, people who have ADHD, like it's, you know, it just, Mm -hmm. exercise is a really great outlet. Um, Our physical experience, you know, is, is, is very much related to mm-hmm. our experience of anxiety, our experience of rage, you know, and, and so for many people who have anxiety or rage, the the trick or the key to treatment is very much learning or teaching the person how to become better in touch with their physical responses, you know, and that can be like self-rating scales throughout the day, zero to 10, zero, I'm not feeling any tightness in my body, or I'm feeling a 10 right? And learning how to be more aware of that so that we can learn to start to be more in touch with our bodies and learn to lessen it and, you know, slow it all down. Um, But if we're walking through the day all the time, you know, at a five or six on that continuum, our muscles are tighter, our experience of anxiety is much more pronounced. uh, It's harder to slow down the anxiety, you know, so all of this is, the body is very, very important, Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, and I'm probably going to ask you a question that's slightly difficult to answer. And I, I get this, I get similar questions as well, and I know they're difficult to answer. But if someone were to come see you with symptoms of anxiety and they were looking for this, they were looking for help like that, what would you do with them? What kind of exercises do you find are most helpful when you're dealing with your patients uh, having anxiety? Yeah. So, so specifically for anxiety, I will say, you know, I'll teach them about like these self rating skills. If we're watching a scary movie, right? We don't look at the scary movie and say, oh my gosh, I'm so scared. 
right? We're like, oh my gosh, I'm so scared. And part <laughs> of what happens, and I know you can hear that, you can hear that in my voice, but part of what happens is we have these physiological responses, right? Our blood pressure increases, our muscles get tight, our pulse, our skin temperature can even change, right? And so we need, our, our brow will get furrowed, we'll need Botox, right? So all these things <laughs> happen as we're anxious, you know, but without the anxiety, the physical responses of anxiety, you're not feeling that, right? You're not just saying, oh my gosh, I'm so scared. In order to feel the anxiety, you have to have the physical. And so in order to get control of the anxiety, we have one of the things that we do is start learning to be more in touch with the physical, right? And so it's looking at your body, doing these self-rating scales, breathing every hour, you know, doing body scans, figuring out where your muscles are tight, and also learning like that, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, it's very akin to like a volcano, right? A volcano at about four is when it's really hot. And at about five is when the lava starts to erupt, right? And from the time that it's five erupting to 10, all that's happening is this force of the lava is extravagant, right? When we have like someone who's having anxiety or panic attacks, it's a similar thing. So you often will hear people say, they're having panic attacks and somebody will go over to them and say, breathe, calm down, right? But if you think about it like a volcano, right? Their, their physical is already through the roof, mm. right? They're already like spewing the lava. Their heart is racing, right? And so it's very, very hard to calm it down when we're in that state of extreme physiological response. And so one of the ways that we have to manage anxiety is starting to be much more aware of where we're at on the number line throughout the day so that we never allow ourselves to get fully up to the five because once it's at the five it's going to be much harder to slow it down it's like if we're running right we don't just say stop it's much harder to stop when you're in the middle of running fast so we have to like walk right and so throughout the day it's constant check-ins where am i at right now and as you're approaching a five it's like what do you need to do right now to calm it down so that you don't you know get to a six and start exploding what do you have to do? Walk away, take a breath, maybe listen to some spa music, maybe blow bubbles, maybe do 25 jumping jacks and get it out of your body. Mm -hmm. Maybe walk away for 10 minutes. But, you know, that, you know, even with impulsivity, you know, many people or rage, many people get stuck in that moment and they don't know how to bring it down. And so it's very much about identifying what you're feeling in your body and learning to walk away, learning to like reset, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that. And I, I yeah, I, I, what you said about the panic attacks, I mean, I've, I've had a couple and I know that feeling and I, did, I didn't understand where they were coming from, but I told myself they can't just be starting like in this moment. Obviously something was happening throughout the day. Obviously I can recognize something, some sort of pattern, some kind of... Um... Yeah, I mean, panic attacks, you know, are highly biological. Mm -hmm. So we know that, you know, there is a genetic loading but there are things to do for anxiety, you know, and, mm -hmm. and one of the things that we do know about panic attacks is they're uncued, they come out of nowhere, but we do know that when there's more stress going on in someone's life, sometimes they're not always aware of the connection between mm -hmm. their life events and the panic attack. So even though they're biological and they're uncued, typically there's something more stressful going on in their lives that they might not be connecting. So yeah. part of that is also like, writing down what's going on, like maybe journaling or talking about it with somebody, you know, and then throughout the day, like being really mindful of, of your, you know, what you're holding in your body. If I'm working with a couple and they're screaming at each other, right? For 45 minutes, like my shoulders are raised, you know, my, once again, I'm needing Botox, my brow is furrowed, right? My <laughs> muscles are tight. And when they leave, I have all of that in my body. As much as I don't want to, I do. And so I don't care who's waiting in my waiting room. I will take two minutes and just breathe, right? And like, let, let it out. Maybe I'll do like, you know, massage my head, but I will definitely be focusing on my breath to bring my stress level and my body tightness down way before I start with the next person because I don't want to walk into my next session with that same energy, you know, and at the end of my day, I may spend, you know, so I, I, I commute all over the place. So I sometimes have an hour commute home. I will sometimes drive home for a full hour, either listening to complete silence and just focusing on my breath, or I'll listen to spa music. And for that entire hour, 
I'm focusing on my breath, I'm focusing on my muscles and I'm bringing it all down. So that by the time I walk into my house, I'm fine, you know, and I'm not carrying anything. Um, so that's a really important thing for all of us to be able to do. Yeah, I mean, already the proactivity about our health and just understanding why things happen. Obviously, like you said, there's some things that are uncued and they can just happen, especially with panic attacks. Um, but but there are ways that we can kind of manage and be proactive about our life in general. And I like that idea of separating between clients and separating between work and, and home, especially with these jobs, um, like the work that you do. It's difficult to not take it home if you're not mindful of it, right? Absolutely. I, years ago, um, somebody told me that I should come up with a ritual. Uh, that, you know, that separates my work from my home. And so the second I walk in my house, and this is literally what I've done for 20 years, I walk in my house, I wash my hands, and to literally symbolize like I'm washing away the day, right? Mm -hmm. And before I, you know, before I go and hug my kids, I'll often go and throw on my sweatpants, right? And it's kind of like, I'm comfortable now, I'm in my own space, I can chill, right? And then it's like, mommy's here and I'll take the hugs and, you know, and the day is, you know, I'm, I'm in a different space. I'm in my home. Mm -hmm. So I like, I do like the, um, ritual. I think it's important, um, you know, to, to separate for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good one as well. I like that, that you do that and you come home and you wash your hands and I don't think I might start doing the hand one, especially working from home. It's difficult. You'll finish, you'll have your last meeting and then you go into the other room as if nothing happened. But you, if right. you're not creating that separation, it's really easy to have everything leak over into the next phase. There are a lot, right. There's a lot of this happening with, you know, the virtual platforms because mm -hmm. we're finding that our work and our um, social life, you know, they're all colliding. You know, many people are having, uh, you know, sessions on a virtual platform to hang out with their friends and catch up with loved ones. And then, you know, a few hours later, they're on the same computer for work and they may even be watching movies from the computer. And like, there's, you know, there's no separation. And I've even been talking to some adolescents who, um, they, somebody literally told me last night that she's, she does much better in school because she's not used to learning in her room that she regards her, and which is actually healthy, right? She mm -hmm. regards her room as like the place to chill and just relax. And that sitting with her computer all day in her room doesn't feel good. And ideally we would have like a real separate workspace, but not everybody can do that. So there has been a real lack of separation for many people that just really exacerbates the sense of fatigue. Yes, definitely. I, I, I definitely agree, especially with the space thing. I mean, it's so difficult. I never have liked doing work or homework in my room. I always felt like my room should have like no electronics, no phone, no nothing. <laughs> Just, yeah. I don't even like yeah. to charge my phone in my room. Like nothing gets into my room. But um, there are obviously were times where that wasn't as easy to do. And there was everything everywhere all the time. <laughs> and yeah. everything was in the same space. And I remember it just being very overwhelming after a while, yeah. like way too suffocating. Like, to the point where I, I thought I might go crazy. <laughs> like it was a little bit stressful. <laughs> so, um, no, I, that, I'm a big, big believer in the whole separate, like, as much as like separate, separate headspace, separate space, as much as possible, the rituals, waking up in the morning and taking some time for yourself. I think morning routines and nighttime routines are game changers for people. I think we should all have them, um, but they're just so hard to maintain. But when you do, like you said, slowly, gradually get used to having that, you can't see any other way. It's like washing your teeth, brushing your teeth, sorry, or, or you know, you, you see no other way. So I think slowly implementing those things is really helpful. Um, and I just really, really love the way you, you married psychology with your, uh, with your personal training. I think it's so great that you do both and that you can have both set up in one room. Like, I think that's so incredible. <laughs> Um, I love that. No, no, because like it's, yeah, it's just so great. And to, to marry the two and to understand how much we hold in our bodies and how much our movement can help our thoughts and our thoughts can help our movement and so on is, is such a powerful way to help people. So I think it's really great. Um, and I wanted to talk a bit more about your book. I guess, you know, if people want to know more about your book and about the work that you have going on right now and if they want to connect with you and stuff like that. Sure. Um, so the title of my book is called Chemo Muscles, Lessons Learned from Being a Psycho-Oncologist and Cancer Patient. I'm super proud of it. I poured my heart and soul into it. It's extremely, extremely raw. Um, I think that I, you know, chronicle a, a very uh, personal 
um, experience, you know, about going through breast cancer, all the surgeries that I had, the experience of uh, loss, um, the experience of identity change. Um, I held literally nothing back in this book, um, which was, you know, for me, it took me about seven years to write the book. And for me, it represented um, a real uh, change in my identity, right? Like, because when I was first diagnosed with breast cancer, I very much connected it to being uh, frail and weak. Um, and when I, and I really didn't tell many people. Um, and as time went on, I became, you know, much more open about my experience. And then I ended up writing this book where I literally pour my soul onto page um, on paper. So I'm very proud of it. I think that it can phenomenally help people who are uh, in the life of somebody who has not only breast cancer, but any kind of cancer and chronic illness or trauma. Um, I think that a lot of people who love somebody who, who's going through some sort of difficulty uh, try to do the right thing, but many of them say things that are terribly inappropriate and they do things that are not very helpful. And so I talk a lot about that in this book. I give coping, mechanism, coping mechanisms that um, I have not only researched, uh, but I know from working as a psychologist with cancer patients. Um, and, you know, I talk about the utility of that. And as a healthcare provider myself, I talk about a lot of things that healthcare providers need to be doing to uh, better care for, for patients because there's, you know, patients are relying on healthcare providers and there's so many devastating things that can happen um, with patients with their healthcare providers and the way that somebody treats you, the way that, you know, you're pathologized, the time, the time, length of time with communicating test results, uh, you know, without knowing, you know, uh, traumatizing somebody who has a history of, of, you know, any kind of traumatic illness, right? Like there are things that are so important for people to know that I just don't think uh, is really out there. And so it's a very personal account, but I'm, I really talk about it from, you know, a professional lens as well, which I think is unique. Yeah, um, and so, you know, I'm super proud of it. And um, I really am like, it's my, you know, that's my baby. And uh, my, my metamorphosis center is my baby. And uh, I'm looking forward to writing more. And um, yeah, so that's, that's where I'm at right now. That's beautiful. I love that so much. And I think that information really does need to be out there. All of that, um, but especially the the trauma informed the, the trauma information. I don't think enough people are trauma informed. Um, right. So I think that's really important. And I think you know we don't know. We don't always know how to address something or what to say to someone or how to handle it. And you know our loved ones might not know either. And obviously these are very emotional situations as well. So that they're feeling their pains, but of course the person's Absolutely. going through their pain and it's just, it's definitely tricky to navigate. So I think having an open dialogue about it is, is a really important. Absolutely. Step. Because I, one of the things that I talk about is that when I was going through it, I, I didn't, you know, I was so overwhelmed myself that I didn't even know what to tell people. Like mm -hmm. I didn't know what, how I could ask for help, but all I knew is that, you know, what they were giving me might not have been right. Right. And so like, there are things to understand about that and things for people to, you know, know how to help, you know, or how not to be, um, you know, shut out. Um, like, you know, there are ways for that somebody who's experiencing trauma may unintentionally shut people out and then not get the very care that they need so much, mm -hmm. really just because they're dealing with their own emotions. And so that's, you know, another thing. Uh, there's so much in there, but, you know, one of the, one, an, an important thing that I, I just wanted to say, like, you know, even just for the listeners of this is, you know, I had many people telling my story to other people, right? Like I had random people coming up to me saying, oh, I'm so sorry about X, Y, and Z. And I hadn't shared my experience with these people. And at the time I was extremely private. And so one of the things that we know from trauma therapy or trauma work is that because the person has been disempowered in their lives, one of the things that's so important is that they regain a sense of control mm -hmm. and empowerment. And so it's nobody's story to tell other than the person who's experiencing it, right? It's always about like permission seeking and asking who they want to share the story with, you know, what, when, why, right? And it's up to that individual person because those small, you know, movements can give somebody a sense of control or take it away. Uh, so that's another important yeah. thing. 
Yeah, that's a really big one as well. I think it's always often un, um, underrated or un, under recognized <laughs> um, yeah. the importance of letting people tell their own story. I think yeah. that should be kind of applied to everybody and to everything as much as possible. But especially if it's a difficult situation or a difficult story, um, it's especially troubling to hear it from someone else that they've heard the story already, your story from somebody right. else you. I mean, I, you know, it's annoying and it's, uh, it can be really hurtful. And yeah, the yeah. thing that you said that, you know, the people are trying to get their power back after something like this or a semblance of normalcy again, or just getting their voice back and telling their own story. It can be definitely very unsettling and troubling for them to, and I can imagine it was for you as well to have people come up to you and talk to you about something so intense. Um, yes. And I know they probably mean well, right? That's the thing as well. Absolutely. I'm so sorry, you know, and it's, they, they, they mean well, but it's more just that you're blindsided by this, thing <laughs> and you're just thinking oh but i wasn't even i didn't even know you knew <laughs> so exactly exactly heavy, definitely and if people want to connect with you work with you all of that stuff where can they do that um i my website is uh dr um and i'm on instagram uh and on instagram it's doc uh, at dr.renee.exelbert um and linkedin renee exelbert um, and yeah, um, and I'm here at the Metamorphosis Center for Psychological and Physical Change. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'll put all those links in the show notes and then people can get in touch with you and connect with you and work with you and, or read your book as well, <laughs> because that sounds like a really amazing book. So I'll put all of those links in the show notes and that will be that. And I just wanted to thank you so much today for sharing your story, for being so honest and open and oh. insightful. So thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. It was so, so nice to meet you. And when I come to Croatia, you're going you're gonna to hook me up. You're going to show me all the <laughs> cool places. I definitely, definitely will. Um, absolutely. You will have, you will be in good hands. I promise you. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. So, so nice to meet you. You have a beautiful day. Thank you. You too. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Renee. Uh, read a, like such a great story, right? Like I, I, I can never do justice in my intros. So uh, that that does that is exactly the same case today. So for this episode. So as always, without uh, hesitation, please reach out if you have any questions. Don't be shy. Don't hesitate. Uh, if you love this podcast, please leave a five star rating and a review. If you're having trouble doing so and you want to, please reach out to me and I'll help you get there. I always really appreciate your reviews and your ratings. They really go a long way in supporting me and the show. So thank you so, so much. Uh, so yeah, I look forward to hearing from you. I look forward to connecting with you. And I look forward to connecting with you again next week. Until then, be good, be safe, be kind to yourself. Namaste.